Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As viewers, we play an essential role in the mirror stage. The new works by artist Michael David, constructed with shattered mirrors, the viewer's reflection figuratively and literally completes these paintings as each of us is confronted with our own image and life. Later this hour, we'll hear from Michael David about his series of works on view at the Bill Lowe Gallery. Plus, our series of local visual artists in their own words, speaking of art, Today features quilter O.V. Brantley. First, the term gentrification has made its way into everyday conversations as many U.S. cities have undergone massive change in recent decades. Gentrification often disrupts the character of many historic neighborhoods of color, with the influx of wealthy white people moving into the areas. A new series, Intersection, created, produced, and set in Atlanta, captures the subject with nuance and humor. WABE will be airing this series on Friday night starting January 6th. Meg Mesmer is the showrunner, producer, and director of the Intersection series and joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. I am so delighted to be here. Delighted to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Now, Meg, you have identified as a gentrifier. When did you realize that and decide to address the subject? Yeah, you're you're totally on board. I went to school in Detroit. I'm from Michigan, and I went to school in Detroit and basically became an adult in Detroit and starting there started my journey of gentrification. I was the only white woman in my building uh, in downtown Detroit. Then I moved to New York City and lived in Harlem and Clinton Hill and Bed-Stuy as all of these neighborhoods were changing. Um, I moved to Los Angeles and also was a gentrifier in neighborhoods in Highland Park. Actually, I bought my first house in Highland Park with the idea to flip it because I was watching all the HGTV shows and thought that that was a super cool and also a way for me as an artist um, and an actor who has no 401k to start a savings for my family in retirement. And it was after I sold that house and, you know, the neighborhood within two years, we did a slow flip on it. We did a lot of the work ourselves. We sold it and made hundreds of thousands of dollars, but that's when I started to stop and say, wait, this is insanity. Where, first of all, where are the people that are the houses that are being picked up and then flipped? Where are these people going? And I started to really ask the question about 
what this buzzword gentrification meant. And that was back in 20, oh my gosh, 11, 12, and 13. So I'd been really playing with this idea of how I'm a gentrifier, how I affect a neighborhood when I move into it. And then being an artist and a creator, I started to really like seek out a way to put my stamp on this. Like, what is, what is the story and how could I help this issue? How could I use my art to affect this issue in, in, a, in a positive way? Mm. Please tell us about the characters and storyline of Intersection. Of course. So Intersection is a dark comedy digital series. It follows six characters. So it's an ensemble series as they navigate the integration of a close-knit, historically Black Atlanta neighborhood. And really, it's all about their lives and their own self-preservation on a path that's not always Black and white, which is sort of our motto of the series. Gentrification, as you said, is such a trigger word. You sometimes in city planning meetings, they can't even use the word because people are so polarized and they just immediately, you know, get aggressive on one side or the other. And I think the breakdown of this issue is no one can speak about it with a clear head. And so we wanted to, we being the creators of this series, really wanted to come at it in a way that made it palatable. So we we made a, a dark comedy. And you described the ensemble cast. Can you tell us a bit about the characters? Yeah, absolutely. So the first follows OG, who is our sort of rock of the series. Um, she owns the neighborhood store. She's a, a Black activist. And then the second episode follows an accidental flipper, much mirroring my own experience. (laughs) (laughs) The um, third episode follows a Black man who wants to sort of get out of the inner city. And so he wants to get in real estate and he's trying to, you know, an entrepreneur of sorts. And then the fifth episode is sort of an outlier, but it follows a real estate agent in the neighborhood, a white real estate agent. And the last episode is sort of an amalgamation of all of these characters. Um, our through line of the series is a character named Janaya, and she sort of is in all the episodes and it sort of follows her journey as she, who is a neighborhood staple, gets priced out of her rental. Mm-hmm. Why did you title the series Intersection? (laughs) Great question. We did play with a lot of different titles, but in the end, you know, there was so much that we, how how we were describing the series, the intersecting lives of these people on top of uh, an actual street intersection. We just thought, we were like, wait, this is absolutely perfect. And then now as I talk about the series and I hear even in podcasts or everyday life, when I'm hearing people talk about the intersectionality of things, I'm so glad that we landed on this as our title. Definitely part of the zeitgeist. One can argue that the film industry in Atlanta is partially responsible for gentrification. How do you walk the fine line between highlighting a subject and potentially contributing to it at the same time? I think that's the question, Lewis, that I want to ask with the series. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think in the end, you know, anyone that has money that, that's going to go into a, a neighborhood that's, you know, been targeted for gentrification and buy, they need to ask themselves that question of how do I participate in this structure that's been set up for me and, you know, honor the character of a neighborhood without wanting to change it or contributing negatively to it. I I don't have all those answers. I have lots of ideas. And I think we explore that in the series. And I've, you know, read a lot of, of books about it. And I've talked to a lot of officials about it and people that are much better in the space than I am. And, and I think every city, because this is happening all over America and all over the world, 
I think every city has its own, I, I think they have to look at it in their own city. I mean, I think it's different, right? It's not a one size fits all solution to the problem. I think it is very much getting your hands dirty, getting on the ground, talking to neighbors, contributing, saying hello, and and getting to know a neighborhood before you just land there. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with producer and director Meg Mesmer about her new TV series, Intersection, which airs Fridays on WABE-TV. The interactions among the characters in this series are very realistic. How were you able to capture the essence of gentrification in your writing room? So, you know, I'm a white woman, and um, I brought this first to two other white women, my creators, Moretta and Jenica, uh, Moretta Moss and Jenica Hill. But we knew very early on that we could not attack this subject in this climate uh, or in general, in general, just as three white women. So we wanted to build this in a diverse writer's room. So we added Karen Cisse and Jacinta Blankenship to come on as writers. And we wrote this as an all-female diverse writers room. Many of us, all of us, I would say, have been so close to the characters that we play in the show uh, in terms of our experiences with gentrification. So when you say it's realistic, it's because many of the occurrences in the show are real situations that have happened to us. We've just sort of embellished them a little bit for the comedy sake. And we, you know, we know all of these neighborhoods and these situations. And so we wanted it to be authentic. We wanted people to watch it and say, holy cow, am I this person? Wow, I'm this person, you know, or how could I think about this differently? And how could I play out a situation like this differently? So yeah, I think that's how is just we we are those we are those characters. <laughs> Meg, what was the importance of having a female-led production crew on the project? Thank you for asking that. I'm a big advocate for women in film and TV. I you know, came up in the industry as an assistant in Hollywood, had my fair share of uh, sexual harassment and power, you know, struggles with males. I became a producer so that I could, you know, do roles as an actor that weren't just prostitutes or something, you know, that I didn't want to play, something interesting and meaty, uh, something realistic. And so as my career has evolved, I've really been a, a big advocate to change this percentage of male-driven content and characters and direction in the industry. So that's that's why I chose to have an all-females writer's room. I, I know that there are men in our series and I don't want it to seem like women can't write men also because men often and always write women. And so um, that is the reason I, I did it that way. I, I really do want to lift up my community of female filmmakers. And yeah, that's sort of been my guiding light in in, in my career so far. Hmm. The children's song, The More We Get Together, The <laughs> Happier We'll Be, appears in every episode in one form or another. Oh, the more we get together, 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 the more we get together. you choose this song or whomever chose it? Why was this song chosen to recur throughout the series? Well, I'm so happy that you're asking. First, that you, that you noticed it, right? And then second, like you're the first person who's asked about this. So uh, it's really fun for me to talk about this. I have two children. I started this series when I was pregnant with my second child is when we first did a sizzle, right? And it evolved years. My, my daughter's now three, turning four. And I was just blasting that song with my 
kid in the back seat singing. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I was really listening to these words. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. And I started thinking, oh my gosh, this is this is a bigger message. And and it was during, you know, you know, we wrote our first set of episodes during COVID, right before we locked down. And then George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Rochard Brooks, like all of these things, right? So there was really this sense of, you know, white and black and forces sort of against each other. And so much of America has really been guided by that. And so I, I wanted gentrification itself to me is this modern day, you know, it's like anti-segregation in a sense where white people are coming into black neighborhoods, let's say, or poor neighborhoods, which are typically, you know, people of color and then forcing them out. So it's, so it's, it's a really interesting dynamic going on with the problem. And that's why it's racial, not just racial, but also class. And, and so I thought to myself, well, yeah, are we ever going to get this right? Are we ever going to get together in a way that we're going to be happy with it or that we can live together? We can, I mean, if we don't figure it out now, as we're, you know, starting to be able to, I mean, white person lives here, but yet can a, a woman who's lived in this neighborhood for 40 years, stay in her house and can they live together in harmony? I don't know. For me, it was just this bigger thing. Also, it, it's a, in the open market, so I didn't have to pay for the song. <laughs> that was, that was a, another producerial decision of mine. But I also, the reason we put it in the, sh the series in different forms, if you noticed, I mean, one was this beautiful rendition by Brandy Pace that she uses this banjo and she does it in a minor key. And so you're really asking the question, like, what, what is like they, you're using this song or you're sort of hearing the song going, this is reminiscent of something. And then you, if you put it all together, you're going, wow, that's a dark version of that song. version where we we actually played the song backwards um and the whole episode episode three is an episode that starts from the back and then goes to the, to the front of the episode it's a backwards ep episode And which was really fun. <laughs> Nonlinear. Yes. Have you in the writer's room, you personally thought about solutions to gentrification and what those could look like? Yes. I, 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 I think we've, you know, in all the research that we've done with it, we, we of course want to come up with the solutions, right? There are ideas, like I said, I do think that you have to go into each community and see what the makeup of that neighborhood is first, and then really talk to the neighbors and stuff before you start coming up with solutions. But, um, you know, starting with taxes, affordable housing, different zoning laws, you know, which start at the political level. I mean, I had an idea for this series where I wanted it to be like this first season to me is the street level that you're actually seeing gentrification, the first signs of it, the white woman running with her dog, you know, a coffee shop going in. And so the next level to me is to sort of, you know, come out from that and look at the landlords and developers that are putting the rent prices on things. And then even beyond that is the political aspect of this the zoning laws, the politicians running for office and the people that, you know, when, when those first signs of gentrification are being shown on the street, like a coffee shop that went into effect five years prior. And so you really have to, that, that's one of the reasons I want to do a micro and macro level is because 
you know, we can give solutions for a micro level, which is go talk to your neighbors. Don't call the police on them. You know, go knock on their door and have a discussion about, you know, hey, how are you? My name is so-and-so. Um, say hello to them. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's just something very small, but then you have to look at the macro level, which is how did we get there in the first place? Well, you know, why did people start disinvesting in this neighborhood? And so I think we have to look at that, all of it before we start coming up with the solutions. And, and it starts at that macro level also. Mm. And as you pointed out, so much of it has to do with class and income, ensuring availability of housing so that Absolutely. people aren't evicted from their long-time homes and residences is it's also important to address essential to address yeah i mean my one of my um co-writers jacinta she would often say you know how come when i move into a neighborhood the the prices around me don't go up but when you know a white person moves into the neighborhood suddenly the housing prices are inflated and going up and up and so are taxes every year for the longtime residents and there's no tax uh, cap in Atlanta at the moment. And so, yeah, all, all of these questions are important and vital. Absolutely. Meg, what do you have planned for season two? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I would love to. This is a short form series and we were Emmy nominated this year. So, so, so exciting. But what I'd love to do is blow it out potentially into a half hour series. So I am working on that and sort of pitching it around. But if I were to make another uh, short form season two, like I mentioned, I think this would be the next level of gentrification to me, which is the uh, landlords, you know, the housing market, like the buying and selling, the flipping, the developers. So we would sort of go into that and, and humanize them because they are still humans that live in our society and sort of look into what they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and how they're making decisions and what's driving that. Because hopefully with the show, you'll see that we aren't necessarily saying gentrification is good or bad, right? It's just all of the trigger issues around gentrification that is that is what we need to address and address it well in order for us to all thrive. Meg Mesmer, thank you so very much for talking with me and best of luck with continuing the Intersection series and congratulations on that Emmy nomination. Thank you so much, Lois. I'm delighted and again, honored to be here on City Lights, such a big fan and so happy to be a part of the WABE family. Producer and director Meg Mesmer. Intersection airs on WABE TV every Friday night after Father Brown, beginning January 6th. More information is on our website, wabe.org/slash city lights. In a moment, We'll hear from artist Michael David and learn how a vivid dream became his inspiration for the new exhibition, The Mirror Stage. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking.
Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The career of artist Michael David has spanned several decades, and with inspiration from abstract expressionism to punk rock, his works are in permanent collections, including those of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim Museum, and the Brooklyn Museum, among many others. His most recent body of work, The Mirror Stage, was created using hundreds of pounds of broken mirror, pushing the boundary between painting and sculpture. The Mirror Stage is on view in Atlanta at the Bill Lowe Gallery through January 7th. Michael David joins me now via Zoom to talk about the exhibition. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois, and thank you for that um, beautiful introduction. Much appreciated. Well, you've said that the inspiration for the mirror stage began with a dream. What can you tell us about that dream? I was sharing a studio up in Tivoli, New York, with the uh, with a, the painter Astrid Deek and uh, Judy Fafs, where I was working for a year and a half. And uh, she had never seen my original symbol paintings. She said, when you saw, when you did these, you had a vision. And I don't believe in visions, but, you know, I just did them without any thinking. She certainly has, you know, visions about, talks to all poets and historians and writers in her, in her own visions. And I went to sleep. And then three days later, I just woke up. And I saw these, these paintings, and I just knew that I had to do them. I, I know historically there were other artists that had um, dreamed about things, and then when they did them, uh, you know, they had to do them. I Not to compare myself in terms of level of uh, quality, but certainly uh, John's dreamed the flags, and, um, and Paul McCartney dreamed yesterday the melody for that. And when you dream something, you're definitely... Um, tapping into a kind of collective unconsciousness, which is also very, very personal simultaneously. Michael, why did you choose the name Mirror Stage for this series of works? It comes from the uh, writer Lacan, and it talks about, you know, reflecting upon oneself to be able to see oneself in the rest of the world. And, you know, the mirrors are very, very complicated and mystical things um, historically, whether it's from the Kabbalah, whether it's um, you know a Tarkovsky film or whether it's philosophy, there's a, a huge fascination with mirrors that go on to prehistory. One of the things I love about this series is that the paintings, the works are not completed until the viewer sees their own reflection, and and you went on to say that the viewer reflects on what the paintings bring up. Would you talk more about how the viewer completes this work? Well, I I think that's implicit in all creative experiences, whether it's music, dance, painting, film. You do complete the connection between the author of those endeavors and the viewer. But in this, it distills it in a way that that is the essence of it without much around it besides that. So, you know, for me, it was a way to complete my own history as a painter, my own life, and to look back on it and to accept the fact that we are all complicated, fractured, broken, and how we put ourselves together and reflect on our lives is what the essence of the paintings were about to me. And I believe that um, this distills it. I mean, it goes back to some of my roots, you know, in Abex and punk where, you know, basically I have three chords and I play fast. And, you know, so I'm always looking for that. I'm always looking for the essence of something. So this reduced um, ultimately what I believed about the essence of creativity into this notion of participation and one with the viewer. Oh, wow. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes 
I read that in response to the question, why do people read books? Jean-Paul Sartre replied, people read books to see if they are in them. And that's what you're doing with this series of works. Well, there's a, that's a beautiful statement. Um, there's a, a quote that I like that explains it too in a certain way. Um, they asked de Kooning, and de Kooning was kind of like Yoda. He would say things that were very simple but brilliant. And they asked him how um, he knew a painting was done. And he said that a painting was done when he didn't know how he did it, but he wouldn't change a thing. Now, what he really meant by that was, I mean, we see pattern recognition. We see billions of images since we're babies. So we always do organize in the same way, unless we've gone through some kind of catastrophic physical change. But what he meant was that he got so lost in the process that he was transformed by that moment before he reorganized it at the end. And the degree that the artist is transformed by the process and has a realization in it, that record of transformation is left. You can't fake that. And in that moment of transformation, we become part of something bigger than ourselves that we can feel, but don't completely know. And for me, that becomes a crystallization of a kind of a secular spirituality, which I think is an all great art, this kind of notion of being part of something bigger than yourself that you can feel, but not completely know that you make some kind of sense of being alive and why you are living. I'm curious about how you sourced the mirrors that you used in this body of work. Well, there were a couple. Um, the first ones were Home Depot because it was cheap and easy to break. <laughs> and then, and then we, I tried some, uh, I, I used some antique mirrors that I found, which were harder to break, and, but have a, a very different presence. And finally, up in uh, Kingston outside of when we were up at Judy's, we found this pink mirror, which is very, very rare. And, you know, like it's like 70 years old. No one had seen it before. And I was loath to break it. And then um, finally, I put in a painting called Pink Moon, which was, to, you know, this incredible song by uh, Nick Drake and uh, use it in that. And I wish I could get more of it, but it's you can't find it. <laughs> well, clearly, you do not feel superstitious around broken mirrors. But I wonder, because the act of breaking a mirror is destructive. Did, did you hesitate, particularly with the pink mirror, the antique, did you hesitate or have any trepidation about breaking it to create the desired effect? Well, the uh, pink mirror took me forever to break it because it was so beautiful, not because of any superstitious thing. In fact, I never even thought about about that aspect of it, because I thought I was putting them back together. And, and I, you know, again, you know, I, I ne like I never re remembered the Bruce Lee movie where he enters the dragon, where he breaks the mirror or the Orson Welles movie later from Shanghai, where she shoots the mirror. I never thought of it as bad luck. But when it was brought up to me, I did some research on it. And in the Kabbalah, one of the most sacred texts is on the notion of creativity. And that is about the idea of looking through many, many mirrors at yourself until you understand this notion of creativity as a process rather than an end. So for me, I, I don't think of it that way. You know, I don't see, you know, if, if it was left and it was a single strike and it was a mirror in that context, yes. But I, I never um, I never saw it that way. I saw it as some ways breaking mirrors to capture stars and to see a reflection in the stars. You know, there's a great quote um, by Oscar Wilde that we're all from the gutter, but some of us reach for the stars. And uh, for me, it was a way of trying to bring the stars at night into the earth and trying to make them someplace where I could access them. They were about light. They were about capturing light and reflection and, and acceptance of ever-changing things. I never thought about them as, in that terms of that superstition. I never did. Yeah, I, I never understood the origin, although when you mentioned the Kabbalah, it reminded me of when my husband and I visited, visited Hopi land some years ago. And the Hopi people are very 
Well, I don't know if you call it superstitious. I guess you'd say it is against their belief or religion to have their picture taken. And it, it, it's similar that somehow your essence is contained in this. But in the mirror stage, you are using that in a positive way for the viewer to reflect back on themselves. Well, you know, I, I think it also is a very unintentionally, you know, I have, I have the school and people always worry about whether their work is contemporary. I teach a school online, mentoring school online. And I say, by virtue of the fact, if you are as authentic as you can be, um, you are contemporary of your time. I don't know, um, in fact, uh, what that really means, but I have a sense of what it means. But there is something about these mirror paintings that also do, to use a pun, reflect the times that we are in. I mean, nothing is certain. We live in a fractured time, and we're looking in some ways to find ourselves within that moment that we're faced with right now. I tried to um, take something that was seen as, I never thought that there were negative, to tell you the truth, until people, some people brought it up, but I've never gotten resistance about that. I've never had anybody really, you know, who wanted to live with them and wanted to own them, find that that was an impediment or a thought. Mm. Well, I guess one could say the same thing about mosaics. Yes. And certainly, certainly creativity is coupled with destruction. It's not always additive and it's not always, um, it's, it's not always based on a positive move forward. In fact, one of the quickest ways to improvisation is through, whether it's in painting or anything else, is through something that is destructive without the value judgment. You deconstruct something, you break it down, and then you re reassemble it. Because in that moment, you are so present and so fast that you take yourself outside of it. And you, um, allows you it allows you to improvise and be spontaneous and directly, directly connected to the act. It is one of the tools of improvisational painting or even jazz where, you know, it's just like you learn how to draw an apple when you're a kid or a dinosaur. In my case, I drew dinosaurs and sharks and, and submarines. But in abstract painting or improvisational painting, the act of destruction, the act of being spontaneous can be created by this kind of subtraction and this improvisation. It's a tool, a technique. To get to its essence. Oh. You know, there's a, there is a, um, a theory in physics and economics called the tangent. And we know that... Um, we think of a tangent some, being something off center. But in, in math, it's these giant loops which just go, going round and round until they touch. And where they overlap in that one moment is the tangent. And that's the essence of something. That is the essence of something. I'm always looking for the tangent. I'm trying to reduce things to the tangent. I call it an exquisite, expansive specificity. When you do something long enough, clear enough, with enough passion, you get to the heart of the matter. And so these reduced much of what I've been doing for many, many years to that tangent or to hopefully that exquisite, expansive specificity. Michael, you just took me to my other favorite quote. This, I, I don't talk about this with everyone, but Lorraine Hansberry said, the universal is in the specific. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, when people, when I work with people trying to develop their body, bodies of work in the school, they want to talk about giant world issues. And I say the best way to get to that is by being personal, by talking about how you relate to them, something that happens anecdotally, something that happens, that's happened historically for you, that touches on that, to speak to that. Um, I think that in some ways, my kind of painting or this kind of work is akin to method acting. You've got to embody it. You have to actualize it to really be able to speak about things that are authentic and larger rather than theoretical. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is the artist Michael David. We're discussing his exhibition, The Mirror Stage, on view at Atlanta's Billow Gallery through January 7th. 
You mentioned jazz improvisation and earlier the song Pink Moon. Would you talk about being a part of first-generation punk in New York and how music continues to impact your work? Well, in New York in 75, every art, every kid in art school was in a band. I mean, it was an incredible time in New York. Um, you had hip-hop uptown. You had punk downtown you had the trans avant-garde coming in terms of painting from um from europe because reagan devalued the dollar and everybody was in them you know i was fortunate enough to play in a you know play with some very great musicians and had a band that went on to become famous but it did inform my painting because i wanted my painting to be as real and as visceral as what i felt on stage when i was making that music and I do think that um, there was something related to Abex in this notion of gesture and immediacy and improvisation. Um, and all of that was happening in New York. And if you, know, if you were downtown, you were just part of it. I mean, there were times on stage, very few, where everything came together where there was nothing like that experience. So for me, painting, certainly the early paintings, the symbol paintings and the mirror paintings, I wanted that same experience. I wanted it to be that direct, that pure, and that much energy. I'm intrigued. You've made a few references now to this online mentoring school. Yeah. And I was hoping you'd talk about the sounds of the subway and your artistic life during the earliest days of quarantine, the earliest time of the pandemic. I had just come back from, I think it was Cape Cod doing a residency up there, pandemic hit. And I was um, in my small, beautiful little apartment in um, South Brooklyn. And I would hear the subway come every morning about six o'clock and there was nobody on it. One driver and this, and the announcement would come and I would start to write. And I would do these prompts on, on, uh, on Facebook, where I would talk about things that interested me and ask everybody to join in. Like, I'd ask everybody, like, I'd be like, man, I can't paint a yellow painting. You know, can you paint a yellow painting? And then it would go on and on and on. And it would just build. In fact, we got to the point where the responses broke Facebook. We'd get a thousand responses and they couldn't handle it. I would be on anything, anything from popular culture to painting to film. And it formed this community around it. So then I started to split some of the community up into groups and we would meet and we would just talk about what was going on in our lives and look at each other's work. It morphed into an actual online school, a kind of residency akin to Black Mountain where artists would teach artists. I'd bring in, you know, I still do amazing guest artists, which allowed us to bring in artists that we could never bring into one place from bricks and mortar. We'd have people from France, from, you know, from South, from Chile, from Brooklyn, from California. So it created this community that, you know, would never have been created if pandemic didn't happen and still goes on today. I have friends in there from 10 years ago. I mean, the, the model of it started when I first came down to Atlanta, you know, I guess it's like 12 or 13 years ago. I can't believe it. I started this um, version of it in a bricks and mortar school down there. And then when I moved back to New York, that ended, except for a few people. But uh, it grew into this. And, you know, I still have friends that were in that from Atlanta to this day. And the thing that's so beautiful about it is, unlike other online programs or schools, is that people know each other for five, ten years. And we see how they change. And we go through our parents dying or our kids getting married or break up of a relationship. So we relate to each other as artists. It's not a formal school per se. It's not an academic school, though we teach academics. The people that I learned most about being in a, uh, learned from were, uh, my mentor was Elaine de Kooning because it wasn't really about formal issues. It was about what it meant to be an artist and how you accept yourself and how you get the essence of who you are out in your work. And we share that. And it's uh, to this day, it's still an incredibly nourishing place for me. New York-based artist Michael David. His exhibition, The Mirror Stage, is on view at the Billow Gallery through January 7th. More information is available on our website, 
wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. My name is Ovi Brantley, and I make traditional art quilts. I started quilting after my friend Rosalind Newell decided that we should learn to quilt. I bought a book entitled Teach Yourself to Quilt and worked my way through the chapters. And at the end of the book, you have your first sampler quilt. After making that very, very first quilt, which I still have, I was hooked because I found that quilting took me to a place of joy and totally relieved the stress of my high-profile job of being the Fulton County attorney at that time. I use all different kinds of processes to create my quilts. I hand piece, I hand quilt, I use my uh, sewing machine as well. The thing that really motivates me about making a quilt really is sending a joyful message. I try to incorporate clues for living uh, an abundant life with joy and gratitude. And that tends to take several different forms in my quilts, but that's the underlying thing that inspires me and motivates me to make quilts. I call Atlanta home because it has been home since 1978 when I moved here after graduating from Vanderbilt Law School. Atlanta has influenced my art by its vibrant culture of African Americans doing amazing things every day. I tend to incorporate African fabrics in my work, and I consider that part of the Atlanta influence as well, the whole vibe of being proud of who you are. When I want to see new art in our city, my go-to place is the Southwest Art Center. It's very close to my home. They often have exhibits of new and emerging artists. Um, And sometimes I actually know the people who are exhibiting. I also like catching special exhibits at the High Museum. I currently have my very first solo exhibit going on at the Emma Darnell Aviation Museum and Conference Center. It is an exhibit of only my red and white quilts, although I make quilts of many colors, but this exhibit features only my red and white quilts. You may ask, why red and white quilts? Well, it stems from the fact that I am a charter member of the Lambda Theta chapter of Delta Sigma Theta at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. So since 1974, when I became a member of Delta Sigma Theta, I learned to love red and white. So naturally, when I started quilting, I had to make red and white quilts. Well, it's 20 years later, and I have quite a collection of red and white quilts and just thought it would be wonderful to share them with the world. The exhibit is somewhat autobiographical and sort of traces uh, parts of my life from uh, growing up in the segregated South to becoming a lawyer and a mother and living a life abundantly with joy and gratitude. But I won't spoil it for you. I hope that you get a chance to go by and see my wonderful collection of red and white quilts. 
quilter O.V. Brantley and our series, Speaking of Art. More information about Brantley's work is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The Mint Gallery showcases works by its artist interns in the new Mintern Group Cohort Exhibition, I Don't Know How to Feel. The show explores various styles by three emerging artists, depicting the range and complexity of human emotion. The featured artists, all beginning their professional careers, are Taylor Giles, Ani Colbreth, and Indigo Charles, along with curator Destiny Gray. I Don't Know How to Feel is on view at Mint Gallery through January 7th. More information is available at mintatl.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., author Vanessa Riley takes us through her new book, Murder in Westminster. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with Meg Mesmer, the producer and director behind WABE-TV's Intersection, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.